Hello there, and welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. Happy New Year. This is the first episode of 2019, and tonight is a full moon. It's actually a super blood wolf moon, lunar eclipse. So the super moon refers to the moon being closer to the earth, and uh, the blood moon refers to the lunar eclipse. And the full moon in January is known as the wolf moon. And this is, I believe, the only uh, lunar eclipse of the year. So we'll take all that be a good symbol because this episode is about symbols called Symbol on the Psyche. And it's actually from a talk maybe some years back. Uh, the, the recording was not great, but I did what I could to try to um, edit it and get it into a form that uh, is usable. I almost passed on releasing this one, but I, I'm glad I didn't because I think there's some useful ideas in there. And also I want to thank my brother E for the microphone that I'm using right now to introduce this podcast, which is why this part of the show is going to sound so much better than the episode itself. And I look forward to using the better equipment moving forward and, and hopefully these productions can continue to be enhanced. And before I introduce the episode further, I'd like to share a few things with you. There are some events coming up that you are invited to. I will be returning once again to the Speakeasy Spiritual Community in Hinsdale on January 27th, uh, next Sunday at 10 a.m. And you can find them on that and other events on my website, michaeltodfink.com. Uh, that Tuesday following that, uh, January 29th, I have a monthly mindfulness meeting that's free through Linden Oaks and Edward Hospital in Plainfield on 127th Street, 24600 West 127th Street. It's in the emergency department building. There's a conference room in the basement that starts at 7 o'clock, and that is typically on the last Tuesday of every month. Oh, and also this Thursday, the 24th, have a monthly process group based on mindfulness called Inner Calm, and that is at Oswego Wellness in Oswego, Illinois, and that'll be at 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock. February 8th, there will be another Howl in Harmony, which is an ongoing conversation that I've been having with uh, actor and author Maureen Muldoon, and we talk about sexuality and spirituality, and because it will be close to Valentine's Day, we're going to talk a little bit about finding deeper connection in relationships and better ways to go about dating. That's at Flower and Heart Center in Wheaton. And uh, one more thing, there are a few spaces still for the upcoming retreat in Bali, Indonesia. I'm very excited to be co-hosting that with Curating Mindfulness. Chicago group, and um, it is from April 3rd to April 9th. If you're interested, you can reach out to me directly through my website. And uh, very close to introducing the Kind Mind Studio on the website, which will be a portal for guided meditation and relaxation. Many people have requested audio guidance for that. And um, I'm happy that it's almost ready to get started. And I decided against having any kind of subscription for that service. But I do encourage you to contribute what you can if you use it and you find it meaningful and know that whatever contribution you can make will help me to grow it. And I'd like to add wisdom tales and mystic poems and life lessons. I'd also like to share something about all the books that have impacted my life. So I, I think this has the potential to really grow, but I'll see how you feel about it. And if people support it, you find value in this podcast, which is free to listen to without ads, or if you come to meetings that are or the classes that are free, or if you like the, uh, the studio online, then please consider supporting. And I would never want somebody to not be able to use it because can't pay the bills this month. I mean, that is exactly when it would be important to be able to practice meditation. So I'm glad that it's available to everybody anytime, whenever they need. So you could be looking for that soon. If you're not on the email list, 
um, please sign the email list on the website so that you can get the invite when it is published. Please visit my website, michaeltodfink.com. And uh, like I said, this episode is called Symbol on the Psyche. And I shared a little bit in the beginning of this episode about how the brain is symbolic in its nature and metaphorical. So like the region of the brain that is used to navigate through physical space is the same area that will be highlighted uh, when taking perspective, trying to see something from someone's emotional space. And uh, as the recording goes along, some one part was lost when I was sharing a particular study um, about how the brain is metaphorical. And I'll just briefly summarize that. It was about a study at Yale University um, about 10 years ago where psychologists showed that certain symbols could change the way people judge others. Like, for example, there was an experiment where subjects held different kinds of cups of coffee, either a warm cup or iced coffee. And the researchers found that those subjects were more likely to be generous, to give something to others if they were holding the warm coffee, because it may be symbolized warm-heartedness. They also judged others to be more caring if they were holding a warm cup of coffee versus the iced coffee at the time of making that assessment. This is in line with previous research that showed that physical distance between people also influenced their social judgments about the other person. So then I go on to talk about some symbols, um, like colors, animals, and uh, a story about how I became more aware of the possibility of having a spirit animal, like in the Native American tradition, after my brother ordered a couple custom guitars from Mexico, and because of the names that the builder decided to give each one and what they meant, it uh, it spoke to me. So you, you get to hear that story. And in our most recent album, The Frequency of Love from a few years back, the cover art is a collection of symbols. And symbols can be beautiful. That's why we chose John Morrow, a very spiritual designer in Los Angeles, to, to do that cover. He also designed the, the artwork for this podcast, Kind Mind, the infinity symbol giving back to itself inside of the brain was uh, was his creation, and I'm really grateful to him for that because it, I think it's a perfect fit. On Frequency of Love, we decided to go with a collection of symbols because the meaning of the album is about unity. And so we tried to find symbols from all different cultures and all different times and places that communicated oneness, peace, harmony. We called it Frequency of Love because the idea that Tuning the instruments differently could potentially have a different effect on the brain and the biology of the listener. Instruments are ordinarily in standard tuning, which if you're familiar with hertz, which is cycles per second, the, the, the A would be 440 hertz. We decided to calibrate that a little bit differently and... And my brother and I, we started looking at the mathematics of other cycles. Uh, Hertz is is measured in cycles per second, which is how many times does a revolution happen in one second? So there are some natural cycles like the Earth rotating on its axis, which obviously happens only a fraction of once in a second. And the Earth revolving around the sun and the moon orbiting the Earth when you take those very small numbers, those very small Hertz numbers, you would have uh, something w- way out of the range of human hearing. But if you continue to double it mathematically, you're creating octaves, which are harmonious. And if you continue to double and double and double, you'll eventually come up into the range of human hearing. And what we found was that in standard tuning, none of the notes that you can play, none of the frequencies that you could hear ordinarily harmonize with any of these natural cycles. And 
it's not necessarily important, but we wanted to experiment with finding calibrations that did harmonize perfectly, either as octaves or as fourths or fifths. And I still recall the first time we had all the instruments recalibrated and harmonizing with larger cycles of the solar system. And we're playing the music that we always played, but it was just subtly different and probably would sound no different to to ordinary listener, but it felt a little different. And after we finished the song in that tuning, everybody started laughing. And we didn't know why we were laughing. We just were. And I think it was because we recognized that something was different. Something actually felt better. It's it's also going to be brighter when you're in 444 tuning. And that's what led to the collection of symbols on the on the album art. There's so many symbols from spiritual traditions, so many beautiful ones. They have the power to communicate something beyond themselves. They also have the ability to protect deep psychological truths. Of course, symbols can also be hurtful, but but the ones that express the reality or harmony or unity among people ought to be learned and shared. I learned the deeper metaphorical significance of many mystical symbols in India from my wise spiritual teacher. So I'm grateful to him. In this talk, I barely scratched the surface with that, but I do uh, share a few insights on some of those symbols. Joseph Campbell was known for his study of symbols. He had an essay, a seminal work called The Symbol Without Meaning, and it described a symbol as an energy-evoking and directing agent. also said a symbol, like everything else, shows a double aspect. We must distinguish, therefore, between the sense and the meaning of the symbol. It seems to me perfectly clear that all the great and little symbolical systems of the past function simultaneously on three levels. The corporeal of waking consciousness, the spiritual of dream, and the ineffable of the absolutely unknowable. And of course, it was the subject of study of the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung, who studied archetypes. Paul Tillich said that symbol is sometimes taken for reality. Symbols are complex and their meanings can evolve as the individual or culture evolves. When a symbol becomes identified with the deeper reality to which it refers, it becomes idolatrous as the symbol is taken for the reality. The symbol itself is substituted for the deeper meaning it intends, it intends to convey. The unique nature of a symbol is that it gives access to deeper layers of reality which are otherwise inaccessible. Symbol itself comes from the Greek word symbolon, which meant token or watchword, and it has an even uh, a smaller root, S-Y-N, sin, which meant together, and to throw or put. So the evolution from Greek was probably throwing things together, putting things together. And there's not a lot of research on the effect of religious symbols on the brain because it gets complicated with the different emotional significance and how that activates different regions. But we do have some research and it depends on an assessment known as beliefs about God assessment form or B-A-G-A-F that measures the adaptability of a person's religious beliefs correlated significantly with activity in the amygdala and insula when observing religious symbols. We do know that negative symbols have a certain suppressing effect in the visual regions of the brain through functional magnetic resonance imaging. So that is interesting. But anyways, there's a lot more to learn and a lot more for us to discuss in the future. And I think that's it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please uh, rate the podcast and review it if you can. I know that's possible on Apple Podcasts. Not sure how it works on the other platforms, but uh, happy super blood wolf moon lunar eclipse.
how would you explain or describe what a symbol is? Yeah, it's a figure or something that means something to a group of people. It has metaphorical meaning. And sometimes that meaning is pretty hidden or, un or not well known. But well, when we look at the letters of the alphabet, some of the letters in our al English alphabet are also words. Right? Like the letter A is also a word in itself. I is also a word. In Sanskrit language, which is one of the oldest, maybe the oldest language on the planet, there's 50 letters. Every letter is a word that has up to seven meanings. So when putting that language together, there's lots of metaphors and there's lots of different ways it can be interpreted. It's been used for describing mysticism because of the, the way that language was structured. But yeah, alphabet is a good example. What I'd like us to do is think beyond like basic religious symbols or fundamental religious symbols and, and start to open our mind to the idea that so many things could be a symbol for us in our, in our personal journey. Sounds, colors, elements, numbers, animals. So we're going to open our minds up to all of these different things that we encounter on a daily basis and to start to look for me, or even assign me, and then that's used to inspire. Ultimately, for our purpose, a tool for our development and our growth. I'd like to tell you a little bit about how the brain functions on symbols, the brain on metaphors. It's kind of fascinating because our brains don't really have different parts for the reality and for the metaphor. And because the same part of the brain will often be activated by a real situation and a metaphor for that situation, it is a clue for being able to use symbols to bring out more positivity in our life. Just like visualization is a technique in sports, in business, in sports we might use visualization for getting better at putting or shooting a basket or something like that. And the reason it works, I used visualization as an artist playing the instrument. My, one of my teachers said, some of the most important practice that you'll do is without the instrument. And I found that to be true. And the reason for that is because of symbols. The idea of visualization in your mind is not differentiated in the brain. The brain doesn't know the difference between actually shooting free throws and physically shooting free throws. Once it's done, the memory is stored in the same place of actually having done it and just imagining that you've done it. That's why in a dream, if we're experiencing something in the dream, our body is responding as if it's real. So that's a simple. But I'll share with you a few interesting studies that I brought that shows a little bit where exactly in the brain this works and how, how this works. Consider observing an animal or a human being eating something gross. Like maybe totally spoiled food or eating some kind of insect or something like that. How would you describe the way we would react internally? Nauseous. Repulsed. Yeah, repulsed. Maybe disgust, right? Afterwards, if you even smell, but the food is not there, the part of the brain that became active when you saw that will become active again. But the interesting thing is that this idea of disgust works not just for food, it works for moral failure as well. The brain does not separate between disgusting food and a disgusting behavior. <laughs> the same part of the brain will be activated. So that is one example of how symbology works in the brain. To read a story about how an old widow who was really kind was taken advantage of by her mortgage company would make the same neurons in the brain fire as when they were firing when you were disgusted seeing an animal eating something really gross or a human being eating something really gross or the smell of that same food later on. All same part of the brain.
there's not a new part of the brain or a separate part of the brain to experience that. Which is why we have symbols for, or metaphors for when we experience something disgusting. And we might even think of those bastards at the mortgage company as disgusting or gross or uh, they make me want to puke when I think about how those people treated that old lady, you know. So we're actually talking about it in a symbolic way as well. Another example um, symbolism is with pain. Let's say somebody takes a needle and pokes your toe. So your spinal reflexes kick in, makes you pull your foot back or instantly jerk. And let's say you witness that same thing in your beloved. So you don't actually feel pain, but all of the same parts of the brain will fire. And there's a neurotransmitter involved with both experiencing your own pain and seeing the pain in your loved one. It's called substance P that's involved with interpreting or telling you about the intensity of your pain. So when this neurotransmitter, neurotransmitter is a chemical signal between cells in the brain. When uh, that neurotransmitter is blocked by certain drugs, people who are clinically depressed tend to get some relief because the world's agonies don't burden them as much because that neurotransmitter is not making that communication. It's the anterior cingulate part of the brain that's involved in, in this processing. It's active, it's being stimulated by both your psychic pain, which is like the emotional pain, and your own physical experience of pain. So our brains in that sense don't differentiate between the symbolic pain of seeing my loved one hurting and me actually hurting. So another interesting study is with haptic sensations. Haptic means touch. Volunteers in this study were asked to evaluate the resumes of supposed job applicants. And the critical variable in this study was the weight of the clipboard that was holding the resume. So the resume was attached to one of two different clipboards. One clipboard is light and one clipboard is much heavier. And the subjects who evaluated the candidate while holding the, a heavier clipboard tended to judge the candidate as more serious <laughs> and deeper, with the weight of the clipboard having no effect on, say, how congenial the applicant was. After all, we have expressions like the gravity of a situation. That weight metaphorically represents the intensity of a situation or a weighty matter. So our brain has these, these interesting aspects of non-differentiation when it comes to symbol. And these symbols can be used to influence human behavior. Anyways, um, the yin-yang symbol looks like this. Most of you have seen these. So when you look closely, inside of the dark section, there is light. And inside the light section, there's a small dark spot. And the inner meaning of that is that nothing is truly black and white. Even in nighttime, there's still light, right? And sometimes, in the daytime, it's not completely light, sometimes a little bit obscure. So what this means is, for the person of mindfulness, it's good to open your mind to both sides and to be aware that nothing is completely black or white, that somebody's story is not completely true or untrue, that there's always a little bit of truth in everything and to try to see that. But our minds tend to go towards extremes. This is either good or it's bad. My situation either sucks or it's great. My life is either good or it's bad. So we tend to file everything neatly on one side or the other. But in this symbol with that dot, it means that nothing is really like that. Everything is an ebb and flow and fluid. 
So when you have this awareness of the yin-yang in your life, you can start to see that everything is ebbing and flowing. And we wouldn't say that daytime is good and nighttime is bad, right? Aren't there good aspects of nighttime? But what about when it applies to our life, our relationships? So it's nighttime. But I would ordinarily interpret that as bad. But it could be, it could be different if I had the, the understanding of the forces of the yin-yang and the symbol. If it's nighttime, what do you do at nighttime? You sleep, you rest. So if it's nighttime in my relationship, I shouldn't be trying to work it out. Because you don't work at night ordinarily. You sleep at night. So if it's nighttime in my dynamic with my partner, that means it's time to step back, do my own thing, or, or enter into repose. But what do people do? They interpret it as bad, darkness is bad, so they keep fighting. But you inevitably fall asleep when you try to work at night at the computer or at your desk or you try to read. You start to, it doesn't work, unless that's, you know, that's your routine. But ordinarily it doesn't work. Similarly, it doesn't work in the relationship at that time. And every relationship has this ebb and flow. It can't always be daytime. And even if it could always be daytime, that would not give you the full experience. Nobody would like for it to always be daytime. And that's why in the parts of the world where there's like a month of daylight and a month of darkness, there's a lot of depression and a lot of health problems. We need the balance. So if it's nighttime in the relationship, don't interpret it as bad, interpret it as night. And then choose your response accordingly. And that's how that symbol can be valuable for you in your life. And the symbol, the, the dot is subtle. In your life, when you perceive something as this way or that way, can you see the dot in that situation? Some people are wired to think in black and white. But usually when we deal in black and white terms, or all or nothing terms, we suffer more. It's a common uh, personality trait in borderline personality disorder and lots of other mental illness, black and white thinking. And we use tools like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to help people become more aware of black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, and try to have more middle thinking. Both and thinking, not either or thinking. So, like this, we have to try to work with our circumstances in life and go deeper into it. And not be satisfied with, you know, a black and white categorization of our experiences. And then we'll be using this symbology to get more insight into our, into our life situation. Masculine and feminine are examples of yin-yang. Masculine and feminine does not necessarily mean man and woman. It sometimes can mean man and woman. But masculine and feminine are forces that are within every individual. There's a masculine side to life. There's a feminine side to life. There's a masculine energy. There's a feminine energy. And finding your own personal balance. And then finding that balance in relationships. Sometimes relationships struggle because people think, I have to be so neatly masculine and you have to be so neatly feminine. But what a relationship requires is just some kind of harmony. And within oneself they have to find that harmony. How does my life manifest balance? What, what type of forces do I need to pay attention to? Another symbol that you find in most religious traditions is the lamp. What do you think the lamp is a symbol of? Knowledge. If light is illumination, then the opposite of that being ignorance. Ignorance has two qualities. One, it has a veiling power. And that's why in some cultures, the ignorance is personified as a deity. Like uh, in Hinduism, it's called Maya. And that maya or that ignorance has two qualities. One is a veiling power. You can't see what's really there. And then two, it has a projecting power. You see something else. So you don't see what's really there. It's veiled. But you do see something else. And that is what many spiritual traditions say the world is. It's, it's a veil, and then you don't see what's really there. But you see something else that's not there. So I'll give you, an, I'll give you a metaphor, a symbol. And that is a rope. 
in dimly lit space, a rope somewhere in the room might look like a snake. If I think it's a snake, I'm ignorant of the reality that it's a rope. But the two things have happened. I don't see a rope, so what's really there is veiled. That's the veiling power. But I do see a snake, and the snake is not there. That's the projecting power. And that's the symbol of ignorance in a nutshell. One veils, two projects. I can't see what's really there until I flip the lights on. Then once I flip the lights on, there's no more projection and there's no more veil. So that's why the lamp is illumination. It removes the veil and it ends the projection. Becoming fully aware is called enlightenment because it means the lights are completely on and now you get to see the reality. The lamp in mystical traditions is also a symbol for human life. The lamp gets lit, which means it's not always, it wasn't always lit. It gets lit, so that's birth. And then it eventually is extinguished, that's death. In between, you have some oil that's burning. So the lamp has camphor oil, and eventually that burns out, and it's extinguished. And that's a symbol of human life. The lamp has to be taken care of, to be protected, because it could go out unexpectedly. When the oil is put into the lamp, it'll have its own lifespan. That lifespan gets spoiled if a strong wind comes or the lamp is dropped or something else happens, it will extinguish just like that. So it means that human life is very unpredictable. We have some energy in our body and we think it could go for X amount of time. But a strong wind can come at any time and extinguish the life. But people aren't thinking of that. People don't think that's going to happen. All around us, everybody is expiring, and nobody really thinks about, maybe my lamp goes out tomorrow. The wick is made of cotton. Cotton is a metaphor for human desire, because cotton is what we make our clothes out of. And in the past, that was what you would desire the most, before there's all kinds of technology, clothes. And wealthy people had lots of clothes, different colored clothes, in the past. So it was the symbol of desires. And the, the fire is the symbol of knowledge, and it burns the wick. It burns up the desires. So through knowledge, people can manage their desires and not have as much trouble in life. In many traditions, you, you do some sort of worship or practice with the light. In Zoroastrianism, they feed a fire for a thousand years. The same fire has been burning from Persia, and it was brought from Persia when the Muslim rule took over. They were exiled and they went to India and they carried the fire 900 years ago, and the fire is still burning in Bombay, in Mumbai. And every day, some priests are giving oil or ghee or something that the fire can burn, pouring it into the lamp every day for like thousand plus years. And this is also a symbol of human life. There is a fire burning in the body. What's the oil for that fire? The oil is your breath. Without another breath, the fire goes out, it's all over. So there's a fire, there's a life force burning inside of the body. And the body is filled with heat. The body's like, in some parts, over 200 degrees. When that fire goes out, the body's a dead body. It's cold. And that fire, just like any fire, burns with oxygen. So you have to keep pouring oxygen on. In the spiritual practice of meditation, every breath is poured on the fire, or soul fire in some traditions, with a prayer. The prayer is not necessarily a little literal prayer. The prayer is that you're doing it with gratitude or some sort of self-awareness. So all the time, breathing is happening autonomically. When breathing is happening auto autonomically, the medulla is controlling it in the lower part of the brain. When you do it with conscious awareness, the higher part of the brain takes over, and that part of the brain shuts off. And it leads to more peace and awakening, because you're ascending up into the higher aspects of the brain that lower mammals don't have.
So we have this option to breathe in that way. And when you make it a spiritual practice, I'm not just breathing. I'm taking oxygen from the universe and I'm offering it as an oblation to the fire inside the body for as long as it's burning. And we can't remember to do it all the time, but if we actually make time to do it with our meditation in the morning and at night, then you cultivate this as a practice. And in time, meditators become more and more aware of more and more breaths. In the beginning, when I began this practice, like 15 years ago or so, I counted my breaths, and I counted 100 breaths. Then I counted 200 breaths. Then eventually I was conscious of 1,000 breaths. Then eventually I was conscious of 10,000 breaths in the course of the day. 10,000 breaths taken from the higher part of the brain. And that led to a whole lot of transformation. More self-awareness, more health, better digestion, better sleep. Whole, the whole system started to transform. We have that option, but in the beginning, that's too much to ask of a person. So in the beginning, try to do it for a few minutes in the morning, try to do it for a few minutes at night. Then once in a while, step back from your work, sit down, draw in several breaths through that, that part of the brain. Anytime you do it consciously, medulla shuts off, upper part of the, of the brain and the higher cortex is used to consciously do it. And then you breathe deeply, mindfully, and your thoughts start to reduce. When your thoughts start to reduce, you feel more anchored in the present moment. The only reason we don't feel connected to the present moment is because of thoughts. We think about the past, we worry about the future, and we lose our peace of mind. When you breathe deeply, it reduces your thoughts, so spontaneously you can start to connect with the present moment. That's why people feel peaceful. Because breathing is happening in the present moment. And when I do it consciously, my mind is less distracted. So that's the symbol of the lamp. The lamp is illumination. The lamp is a symbol of our life. The oil is the breath, the uh, oblation, or the fuel for the life force in the body. If you can't get that breath, then your candle gets extinguished. And that could happen at any time. The slightest wind puts out the fire of the candle. Any sort of accident, any sort of misstep, and boom, the candle gets extinguished in the human body. So speaking of the human body, another symbol across spiritual cultures is the boat. You'll find reference to the boat in Christianity, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Taoism, in Native American traditions. Boat. The ocean is the symbol for the world. The boat is the symbol of the body. And the journey is taking that boat across the ocean, across your life, and trying to navigate it without drowning. Trying to get skillful at sailing across the waves. So the boat you'll find in many stories. In Christianity, there's some story about the apostles being in a boat and Jesus is sleeping. Apostles are freaking out. <laughs> And then ultimately they go and they wake Jesus up. Okay? You will find a similar story in Buddhism and Hinduism to that story. So the deeper symbolism of these kind of stories, at least from the mystical perspective, the boat that they were in is a symbol for the body. And the ocean or water that they're on is a symbol for the world. And after a certain amount of time, their extrovert attempts to subdue the nature, the water, were unsuccessful were failing. So what did they do at that time? They stopped looking outward, they looked inward. Because it was in the inner chamber of the boat where Jesus is sleeping. So they go there, they wake him up. Once he's awake, then the waves settle down and the wind stops. There's two things that stop in that story. Specifically it says that the waves stopped and the wind stopped. Come over to Buddhism. The two obstacles to nirvana are waves and wind. Vana means wave, it also means wind. And near means negation. So why do we got to get rid of the wind and water, or waves, in Buddhism? Well, wave is not just applied to water, where else do we use the word wave? Thought waves. So when there's no more thought waves, when that's still, then the storm's over.
then you get nirvana. Thought waves going like this, and then eventually flatlining is nirvana. Vana also means wind, which is breath. Wind is the symbol of the breath. So when the breath is super fast and chaotic, like in a panic attack, you're in the middle of a storm. Breath is fast, wind is high, and you're going to have racing thoughts, which means lots of waves. Lots of waves, lots of wind, you're in the middle of a storm. Nirvana, meaning no wind, means that when the breath is so slow, so feeble, so controlled, so still in deep meditation that it's almost not there. In, in the other example of the boat, like in the Christ, Christian perspective, maybe the boat means the human body, and again the waves and the wind are our own turmoil. And you can't solve it by trying to change others. You can't solve it by trying to control the water or control others. When you go inward, the awareness that was previously dormant wakes up. When you wake that up, then your breath slows down, then your uh, thought waves slow down. You don't have racing thoughts anymore. With the practice, the continued practice of inner meditation, your mind doesn't disturb you anymore. Your mind is no longer your enemy. Racing thoughts no longer plague you. You get to choose when you want to think and what you want to think about, and you'll be able to think about that for as long as you want. And when you don't want to think about that anymore, you'll be able to let it go. Then the mind is what it ultimately was designed to be, an instrument. In other languages, it's called an instrument. So the instrument means it does nothing unless you want it to be used in a particular way. The guitar makes no sound. The piano makes no sound unless I play it. If I'm not playing it, it's silent. And if your mind is an instrument, that means if you're not using it, it's silent. We can't get that experience unless we have a mindfulness practice and in time we cultivate that practice and our mind grows quiet. Then we can really make music with our mind. In Native American spirituality, there is animals as symbols. And there's an idea that everyone has a spirit animal. And I didn't know much about that throughout my life. And when I, when I started to get exposed to that idea, that maybe you have a sim an animal symbol for you personally. Oh, well, well, I wonder what mine would be. Then it soon became very clear, for me at least, that my spirit animal, if there is such a thing, or at least the one I want to adopt, is the fox. Because I think about fox, and I see fox all the time. I see fox in my dreams. I encounter foxes near my home. And later in life, I found out my own name means fox. Todd means fox in Old English. And I find it come up more and more. But I wouldn't have if I didn't open my mind to the idea that animals could be symbols for your personal journey. I opened my mind up to that. And that we've already established as one of our foundational qualities for our group that we'll be open-minded with each other. So I was open-minded about it. My favorite superhero growing up was Zorro because I love the idea of somebody helping the poor and doing it in a humble way. Why is it humble? Because he has a mask. He doesn't let his identity be known. Only last year when um, a Mexican guitar maker built me a small guitar called a Requinto in Mexico and inside he wrote, this is El Zorro. So when I got this guitar, and I remember that that was my childhood hero, I thought, this is a symbol. I should figure out what Zorro actually means. So I look it up, I never learned what that, I learned some Spanish, but I never learned that word. It means fox. <laughs> and then I get, once again, I thought, that all makes sense for me. How do you find out what your spirit animal is, if you're interested? Well, I have some questions from... Native American shamanism that can guide you if you're interested in finding the symbolism in your own life. Which animal or bird has always fascinated you? Because we're often drawn to that which resonates with us. And those animals which fascinate us maybe have something to teach us. When you think of a fox, what do you think of? Foxes tend to come out 
at dusk and dawn. I think of a gate between two worlds. I think of a passage. Two sides of life can be in one aspect of life and know the other side too and can guide people across. So there's lots of things like that. I think that I'm a really silly person and I, I think I use humor a lot and I think of the fox as a trickster and playing pranks. So anyways, you can ask yourself what animal always fascinates you and maybe what about that animal fascinates you. Fascinates you. If you were to go to the zoo and you can only see one animal, which one would you like to see? As a child, I think this is especially important. In your children, you can pay attention to this and be open-minded to what they're naturally drawn to. Children naturally and spontaneously want a certain animal in their life. They want a dolphin stuffed animal, or they want a giraffe stuffed animal. They maybe give, give you some indication of your child's nature. Remember, it's not our job to make our children like us. It can be our job to be more like our children. It's not wrong to be more like your child, but it can be detrimental to try to make your child more like you. Pay attention to your child, learn about your child, and try to support your child um, be more like who they are. That's hard for a lot of parents. Even if their children become adults, parents are still trying to control them, still trying to make them like them, telling them what to do. Child's already full-blown adult, and I see the parents still trying to control their life. It's normal, but it's not so healthy. What animals do you see most frequently when you're out in nature? Have you had encounters with animals in the wild? Maybe the animals we encounter in the city environment or in the wild have significance for us, and we can learn from them, even if only about survival within that environment. Of all the animals in the world, which are you most interested in now? Because our interest in animals change. It's not that you have only one animal throughout your whole life, as I've described in my life. We change, our values change, and different animals may come into your life. We usually have one or two that are lifelong. In native traditions, those are called spirit animals or power animals, but, but others become prominent at certain times when maybe something important for us to pay attention to. What animal frightens you the most? That which we fear the most is often something we have to learn to come to terms with. When we do that, it then becomes our power. Some shamans believe that fears will take the shape of an animal, and only when we confront it without fear do their powers work for us instead of against us. And finally, do you have dreams with animals in them, or are there animal dreams that you have never forgotten. And then if you know what that is, you can look up, this book's called Animal Speak, about spiritual traditions of the Americas. Numbers are also symbols. If you paid more attention, you probably notice that you see certain numbers more often than others. Numbers themselves have significance in different cultures. And there's a study of number symbolism called numerology. One means beginning, nine means completion. Nine is the end of, of numbers. After nine, you go back to zero. So nine is a symbol of fulfillment, completion, the end. One is a symbol of new beginning. Two, what do you think two can be a symbol for? Partnerships, togetherness, romance, love. Three, very symbolic in lots of religions, like Trinity. Colors, what is red a symbol for? Power, danger, caution, stop sign is red. Face turns red when we get angry, so red is a symbol of anger. Passion means emotional intensity, so that's why it's used both for lovemaking and for anger, because in both cases you get red. <laughs> what about Green, jealousy, green with envy, nature. Red sometimes means stop, green sometimes means go. So there's lots of meanings for these colors. Different cultures reverse the meanings of colors. And, and lots of symbols get reversed. The Nazis reversed the symbol of the swastika. Swastika has been in existence for thousands of years. 
symbol of harmony in Asia. Look at how that has changed for the whole world. It changed the meaning of a symbol, and it changes the emotional reaction in people when they see that symbol. Blue. What's blue a symbol for? Peace, tranquility. Why? What's blue in nature? The sky and the ocean. And if you've been to the ocean, don't you feel peaceful? When you look at the night sky or the day sky, don't you feel peaceful? So it's a symbol. Basically what I'm seeing here with, with colors is use them however they need to be used in a way that your mind and body responds to. If you need more peace, put more blue in your life. The way you arrange your home, the way you arrange your space, and the colors that you use are all symbols. And your brain responds to that. Your biology responds to these symbols. So build your life in a way that makes sense for your, for your peace, for your development. And at the very least, keep a peaceful space in your, in your life or in your home. And make that a symbol for sacredness. Don't bring troubles there. Don't bring anything there other than peace. Cultivate that space as a peaceful space and use whatever colors support you in that. Things in nature are symbols. Cloud is a symbol. Rainbow is a symbol. I was talking to someone today trying to build peace between us and more harmony between us. And at the moment I was having the conversation, a rainbow appeared between two clouds in the sky. Good sign. Anyways, all these things are symbols. But if you're looking for it, you're seeking. That's not to say, you know, get dogmatic with it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying cultivate your own symbolic practice. Your whole life can be a symbol if you want it to be. Your whole life can be a song if you don't treat your troubles and problems as meaningless. Treat them as being full of symbolic value. And then when you pay attention to life in that way, you'll be more mindful. And you can face your troubles, you can face your difficulties, and learn your life lessons. And all these symbols around us can be the tools for your evolution.